Hey friends, welcome to the Radical Radiance Show. I am your host, Camille Rose Fields, coming at you from my little home studio in the beautiful state of Maine. I'm so excited about this episode. You guys, this is episode number four. (laughs) I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's kind of a lot for me. So I'm going to relish in this moment just for a moment. I'm so friggin' pumped about this one. We are interviewing my friend Isabella Fapier, who you may know as Bella took a photo online. And I am so pumped because I've been a fan of hers for years and we've been following each other for a couple of years. And I just really love her style of teaching. Um, She's a sexuality doula. Amongst other things, you'll find out more soon enough. And she doesn't take a shaming approach, which I really appreciate in her work. And I just think that's so important with, I mean, all aspects of educating and teaching right now. But I think that I just, I'm so excited for you to hear what she has to say and the fun stuff that we got into in this interview. So I will leave it there and I'll be back for some segment breaks soon enough and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Today on the podcast we have Isabella Frappier. Isabella is a queer femme Australian who lives in LA. She is a sexuality doula with a focus on body literacy and sexual sovereignty. She incorporates aspects of astrology, sex magic, and feminist BDSM into her work. Her mission in life is to help people eschew the societal conditioning they were raised to believe about themselves and embrace their sensual powers. She works with clients in one-on-one video sessions, as well as teaching group workshops and leading women's circles. She also works as a writer as a means to further champion her sex positive agenda and is a host on the popular new podcast, the sex magic podcast. She also runs a large secret. Oh, a large and secret sex positive (laughs) Facebook group for women, femmes and non-binary folks to safely talk about all things sex. Wow. Welcome, Isabella. I love your intro and your bio. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, um, I'm pretty curious. My first question is coming out of my own curiosity here. Um, what is, can you tell us what a sexuality doula is? What is, what is that work? Yeah, so I can. Um, I started as a birth doula. So helping women and birthing folk in the transition from pre-trialed to post-trialed, whether that's adding to the family or beginning. So it's sort of the phase of supporting the transition and throughout the process of that work I naturally transitioned to supporting postpartum sexual healing and from that I just kept getting referrals to other people that were not birthing folk and it just happened organically so it wasn't something that I sort of woke up like oh I want to do this uh it was more Yeah, Yeah, we were just kind of like listening to the call of my heart and just following where that was leading. Um, And that became the speciality of focusing on uh, sexual healing and 
sexual liberation as well, not just healing, but I think they go part and parcel. Mm-hmm. So a sexuality doula is someone that supports the transition of uh, pre-sexual healing and liberation to post-sexual healing and liberation. So for anyone that's had like a sex therapist or a therapist that God willing had some education around sex, because not a lot of them do, mm-hmm. it's similar to that, but more so someone that is a supportive guide along the way, rather than you should do this, you should do that. Mm-hmm. Because I really feel that it's fundamentally unethical for someone to claim that they can like heal or transform your sexuality. Mm-hmm. I really think that that's something that the individual client does. And then I feel honored to be a support along the way. So I'm really helping wake up other people's innate wisdom and innate sexual knowing and literacy and just sort of supporting that process. And it's fucking fantastic. Oh, sorry. Am I allowed to curse? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm Australian, so we curse a lot. I, I'm not Australian and I curse a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I have no excuses. Yeah. So Never I think <laughs> a lot of people ask, like, what is that? It's funny, like at dinner parties, people ask and I kind of explain and they often go like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need that. I'm like, okay, cool. No worries. This, this. Oh, yeah. Everyone wants to deny any help. Yeah. <laughs> anything most of the most of the time you know I feel like yeah um I feel like a lot of people it's funny I just actually saw this referenced in a movie the other day and it was from the 90s and somebody had mentioned um needing therapy and they were like well what's wrong with you and there was this huge dramatic thing and I was like that's right I almost forgot there used to be such a stigma around therapy and it's why so many people including myself avoided it for so many years and people still do there's such a stigma around therapy and it's very very new that um, it's accepted and what becoming more widely accepted and actually embraced that you know, like maybe we all need therapists or we all need some sort of therapy and healing um, in this way. And so I feel like with that, maybe now it's more accepting for people to have sexual therapists and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, And I think it's so cool that there's like so many incredible lines of work being created out of just pure people's desires and their energy shooting off into the universe somewhere like I need help with this and there's just like people rising up with like new careers and new methods of teaching and it's a really beautiful thing that's happening out of pure just like I think I think you know everyone's needs for this for this type of work Um, and it's so like damaging how the social narrative at least in the west is that you have to be at a point of like chaos before you seek support right and being really encouraging to me is i've noticed over the past few years particularly that more people have been coming to me that are like nothing's inherently wrong i just really want to have like a great sex life and i'm like fantastic like yeah Let's start from that place where you're resourced and excited before it gets, not to say that anyone shouldn't seek support once they already get to the, the place of chaos or turmoil, but mm-hmm. fantastic to be preemptive. Like often people will say, right. oh, I'm in couples counseling and they'll say, what's wrong? It's right. Like, what's wrong? Maybe we just want to learn like improved communication styles. Right. Totally. Totally. It's all about that preemptive support. And it's always those same people that are like, in parties, oh, I don't need that. I don't need that. That then the second I'm alone, corner me, and they're like, 
Let me oh tell you, on, I really need help. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's funny. Well, and I think too, like that, and maybe you can speak a little bit about this is it's an uncomfortable subject for so many people just to even like, you know, even, okay, for myself as, as an example, just to like have a type of connection where I have a f- close enough friend who I'm going to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, my sexuality or my sex life with my close friend, there's like very many levels of um, trust has been built up already. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's like this very much um, ashamed way of speaking about it. If you have like, you know, not even any issues, but any questions. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I, I remember as like a teenager, I felt so uncomfortable asking anybody. I basically like, I found these two books and they were like illustrated with descriptions. They? Honestly, they are, they're like babies and children and something sexuality. And they were they're made by Usborne, which is a big like children's book company. I don't know if they still make them, but I was homeschooled. And so I had, there was always like lots of educational books around. And I just one day found these two books like up on a taller shelf and come to think of it, it was probably, you know, maybe my older brother had like, they were for him or something, but I was like, I got to check these out. And I just was so fascinated. And I just like be in my room in the closet, no light on or with a light on or something like flashlight, probably. Right. Totally hiding and feeling so curious. And I think that, um, you know, I hope my kind of goal with my children and like with hopefully more people in the world these days is like, maybe we can talk about these things before, suddenly, you know, I'm in my mid twenties and I'm like, how does everything even like work? Right. And so, um, I think that there's a lot, what do you, what, what are your thoughts on this? Like, why is it such a, why is it such a, um, not embraced subject when it's so important? It's just basically about like, don't have sex. Abstinency is like the only way or birth control. And so you just, that's all you are taught as a child. What is up with that and what's it doing to our culture i'm like ah yeah i'm like how long do you have um a big part of the problem particularly in america and as an immigrant it's interesting to like observe and research but Mm -hmm. in america many states in america and it's changing every day but they don't they aren't legally required to provide factual based sex education so yeah it's perfectly an option thing Mm-hmm. It's perfectly legal for them to be like, oh yeah, hugging is going to give you syphilis. And you're like, what? And these little children think that. And then conversely, what happens more often, like sometimes they do give like actual lies like that. And I've had clients mm-hmm. tell me kind of stuff that they've had that mm-hmm. exact sex ed in schools. Right. Um, more often than not, it's abstinence only education. Right. And again, like that, to, as to your question of like, why is that? It's like puritanical America and religion, mm-hmm. um, it's like a whole separate thing I could rant about, but mm-hmm. inherently based in fear and control, particularly of women and femme people. Right. And part of the problem with abstinence only ed is it's true. It's accurate in the sense that abstinence is the only safe form of sex, or we could say the safest form of sex, 
mm-hmm. but um, or sexual expression, as in having solo sex with yourself or masturbation. Right. But no science, no studies have ever proven that abstinence-only education is beneficial. In fact, it shows that we have an increased risk of unwanted pregnancies in our youth right. and STIs and STDs because if you don't have the education around how to be safe and instead you're just told don't do it at all, well, yeah. spoiler alert, children and youth are inherently sexual and they're going to want to have sex. Right, and, and like yeah. tell a child no and they're the most curious yes. creature that ever was. Too. Yeah. You know, it's like you, might, you should be just saying, yes, go for it. And then maybe they would take a step back and actually review and like, yeah. why are they telling us to go for it? And it's just so vitally important that the youth get accurate science-based sex education. And I do really believe that it has inherent benefit to have a focus on pleasure and consent and the more like fringe, for anyone listening, I'm doing inverted commas with my hands. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sexualities, I think that should be like the core of sex ed, but it's not. Right. You know, we should be looking at biology. We should also be looking at how the nervous system affects it, you know, how our psychology affects it, consent, pleasure, all these things, solo sex. Like this should all be a comprehensive course that young folk take. Right. And the problem is for a lot of young folk, they don't have this conversation in their household. And if you don't have it in your household and you don't have it in schools, what ends up happening is your sex ed becomes silence. And I've had a lot of clients come mm-hmm. to me talk about your sex education and your sociocultural influences around sex, mm-hmm. um, your peer group, your family, the media. Right. And a lot of them say, I didn't have any. I didn't have any sex ed. And then the more we unpack it, you did have sex ed. It was silence. It was that right. sex wasn't to be discussed. And when we don't talk about sex, we imply there's inherent shame. Right. And so even if you don't have an actual uh, conversational or educational sex education, if your sex education was silence, you've probably internalized that to be shame. And that's so damaging because like it or not, every single person on earth came from sex. How could Mm -hmm. it possibly have any negative connotations? Right. It's really important that we talk about it. Yeah, it is. And I feel like, so just stemming on this youth conversation, if you don't mind for a moment, um, that's something I, I feel like I've, I've been hyper aware of it as a mother of two sons. Um, you know, my sexual experiences growing up were, I would say totally non-consensual. And so I had a, Uh, just an abundance of experience like that. And it feels so important to me that that is taught at a young age to my children and just hopefully more children all over the world. Um, But I also, it's, I feel like the consent and the shame are like, it's, it's all intertwined with this whole conversation um, because I don't want my, my children to be ashamed of feeling you know, feeling things in their body and wanting to explore their body. And so I've, I've attempted, you know, I, I, not perfectly every time I'm like, whoa, sometimes like a little shocked, but I've attempted to always embrace and be like, okay, so here's the deal. We can explore this in the bathroom when you're alone or in your bedroom with the closed door. Mm-hmm. This isn't appropriate around other people. And this is definitely not appropriate with other children at certain ages. And so 
could you speak a little bit about maybe what might be an ideal way to broach this subject with young people? Because I truly don't think there is a proper age to Mm -hmm. start having sex talks with your children. There's definitely, obviously, a puberty age, you know, um, bracket that it becomes way more important about safe sex and all of that. But as far as like, you know, I, I can relate it to the question where people ask me, when do you start homeschooling your children? And it's like, do you just not teach them anything from birth? <laughs> you just It starts when they're born. And so I think maybe we can speak to that for a moment is what is an ideal way of um, both teaching consent in a, in a really like healthy way and trying to remove some of that shame that's ingrained in culture right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love to speak to that. It's, that's a real passion point for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And full disclosure, I'm not a mother. So I think that I inherently lack some of the relevant context, but I can speak to you based on professional experience working with kids and moms and science. Mm -hmm. Um, just feel like that caveat's important because sometimes people are like, you're not a mom. I'm like, that's true, but I've read a lot of science. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's really helpful. And I am a mother and I didn't know what the heck to do at first. And it took just like exploring and listening to a lot of different things to just see what felt good. Yeah, so the main thing that they say is to, that, that science shows to be the most effective in healthy relationship with the parent and the child and the child's healthy relationship developing with self mm-hmm. is to answer questions without adding information. And you can add in questions to create deepening understanding with what the child's asking, but don't knock the question back to them. So I'm going to give an example to make it a bit right. easier when we first, when culture first started progressing to a more like slightly more sex positive narrative, the conversation began around parenting that when your child asks a question, you ask, well, what do you think? But that's kind of damaging because you would never do that with an adult. <laughs> like right. never in a million years would you be like, so I've been having this issue with my clit. Um, what are your thoughts? And then you'd be like, well, what do you think? You'd be like, <laughs> I'm asking you because I respect you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that can create some like distrust in the child because they're like, well, I'm looking for your opinion as an elder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know. That's why I've come to you. But I do think that question asking in the before you respond is helpful just to gain more clarity of their ask. So for Mm -hmm. example, a common one is like, where do babies come from? Right. And you could say something along the lines of "Hmm, like, what are you wondering? Help me understand your question a little bit better. Because sometimes a child might mean, literally, how did that child, it was in your stomach and now I see it here. What the heck happened? Right. You just came back from like the hospital or the birthing center and now you have this child. What the heck? Right. Belly button. So you can also ask like, oh, like, yeah, what are your thoughts? Share with me and then let's chat about it. Mm -hmm. Definitely don't just like lob the question back to them. Mm -hmm. So that's ask a question to get more context. So that might be one of their contexts. Their other context might be they've heard people talk about sex and making babies and they want to know more about sex. Right. How right. to make the baby. So get more clarity on their question. Then answer it accurately, but mm-hmm. not add on any information. So if their ask was about birth, you might say, you might just give a brief summary. Well, I grew it in my uterus and then I pushed it out through my vaginal canal and it came out really like short and simple. And then 
them ask more questions. Right. Don't go. And so this is how it got in there. Right, right. Because that might be too much information to take on. So the, the research shows that children tend to ask questions that they're ready to have the answers on, but then the issue can become when they get additional information they didn't ask the question from. So from the time they first start asking questions, just answer them honestly, simply and honest. And then it can create a dialogue more so as they get older and more conversational. Um, like perhaps when they're closer to like two, three, four, it's probably going to be more around naming things. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that's my vulva. Why mm-hmm. don't I have a vulva? Oh, well, you have a penis. Why is that? You know, talking mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. And you can also, if you want, slowly insert things like, yeah, not all men have penises, you know, so instead of saying like, oh, right. it's because you're a boy, let's say. Right, right. So you can like create these conversations in a natural, more organic way that isn't overwhelming the child because they've asked the question. And then as they get older, we would get more into like the ins and outs of affirmative consent, uh, particularly because you have boys. That's a real issue. Um, Mm -hmm. Boys in general or people socialize male don't Mm -hmm. tend to have the best understanding of, of consent in terms of themselves as well, they're taught a lot. Hopefully they're taught a lot about how to obtain consent. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other conversation of like affirmative consent. Cause like, yes, the whole like yes means yes. No means no. That's so untrue. Right. Sometimes someone says yes, but it's actually a no. Right. Totally. Yeah, so that's a whole other conversation, but yeah. um, boys also need to understand their own ability to give consent. And that just because someone wants to have sex with them doesn't mean that they're socially obligated to, engage in sex if they're not interested Mm -hmm. which is a real uh concerning point for me and i'm seeing um my clients are like 80 percent uh femme and non-binary folk Mm -hmm. and then the rest i I see like male uh identifying clients and couples Mm -hmm. Uh, but my focus is specifically on women Mm -hmm. Um, and i am seeing more and more so when I do see male clients issues with not understanding consent for themselves playing out in later years, which is just really interesting to me. Right. I find that, I find the whole consent conversation really fascinating. And I love what you're saying too, about there's a lot of, you know, what we were saying earlier, kind of introducing this topic is like, there's a lot of, um, energy around the talk right it's like this one event and it's probably traumatizing for everybody out there and it's like ordeal and really it can be one thing at a time you know like conversational you know and it should be a conversation not sit you down let me tell you everything exactly Yeah. yeah 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 just little bits at a time and as they're curious and that's that's also like part of for me that's part of how I intend to educate my children is child child-led learning. And so as they're curious, I'm answering their questions. I'm never like, well, you're going to learn that in eighth grade, so I'm not going to cover it with you. Um, I don't want them to have to feel curious and find other resources. I want them to feel safe to ask me questions. Mm-hmm. Um, on the consent note, I it's interesting being a mother and talking about this and I have like 50 other questions that are not related <laughs> to children and consent. It's pretty funny. But just to sort of throw this out there is I feel I had a, I had a, I had an experience with um, a couple other parents at one point and our children were hanging out all weekend and um, they had two girls and I have two boys, different ages, but close in age. 
and they all just kept trying to get naked together and just like <laughs> explore and be like, look at this. And it, it was just like, it was a little like, oh my God, it felt even a little graphic. It was a little intense. Um, I ended up feeling very upset <laughs> with the other parents who were not taking it seriously. Mm. And I was like, this is not, this is, and, and I was blamed for having my own past sexual trauma and projecting it onto everyone else. And I'm like, that's not actually what's happening. I feel that it's really important at the time my child was, my oldest was seven, mm -hmm. that my seven-year-old male child learns consent. If he's, if you're saying, if, you know, these parents were saying it's cool with them to, for them to all explore each other's bodies. And I was like, it's actually not cool with me. I need to like feel around how this feels first. Mm -hmm. And what we want to talk about with consent, if we're all going to have a group conversation, let's have a group conversation, but that was shut down. So anyway, it just felt like um, this consent topic, um, it's, it's, I feel like it maybe is never too early. You know, I, I, I try and talk to my children about the space bubble and people's mm -hmm. personal space. And so that also includes our intimate parts of our mm -hmm. bodies. And, and so in even more space, when that area is concerned, that's not something that you're going and like touching when you're hugging somebody, mm -hmm. unless you're like partners and that's like an intimate time in the bedroom or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's just a, that's a whole, maybe we have a whole other interview on consent. Yeah, I could really how do adults relearn consent and how do children learn it from the get go? You know, I think it's yeah. like, it's such a long conversation and we could like really dive into that quite a bit. Um, yeah, I could talk about yeah. that all day, but sort of, one of the main things I'll say about like parenting consent, sex positive parenting is be someone your kids feel comfy talking to. So mm -hmm. even that whole interaction, just the fact that you're in showing up and being like, Hey, let's chat. That mm -hmm. models fantastic behavior for your kids. Mm -hmm. And all of the studies say that our kids don't really listen to what they say, what we say, they follow what we do. So if oh, you're yeah. modeling, Hey, let's chat about this. That's probably I'm guessing the main takeaway for your, for your boys. They were like, okay. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Consent and body literacy, very important from the time they're infants. Like the whole idea of go hug aunt Sally and the kids mm -hmm. like, no, thanks. No, do it. Give them a kiss. Let them, you know, you're teaching your children that their right. bodies aren't their own and that adults can tell them what to do with their bodies. So just yeah. really, simple things from the time they're very little can be very impactful later on in life. Yeah. I, um, the space bubble thing really works for us. I actually compared it to the invisibility cloak, mm. of, um, Harry Potter and how right. it's basically like a barrier that you mm -hmm. have our own. And it's, it's pretty funny because they sent, they sometimes think it's an actual bubble in their leg. Oh, trying to do this to my bubble. They're like, well, you really can't feel it, huh? And, and so it's a really sweet thing, but it also has gotten the point across, you know? Um, can you, can you unpack the term body literacy a bit just for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that term? Okay, friends, do you want to learn how to unleash your inner herbal badass? We all have one. Trust me, it's in there. Do you ever hear about an herb and feel drawn to it and you don't know why? 
that's your herbal intuition speaking. Have you, let's say, ever needed an immediate remedy when you're at home and you can't get what you need right away or stores are closed or something and you wish you had what you needed right there at the ready? Y'all can learn how to make your own home apothecary and dial in your healing protocols as well as medicine through your food. My new course, Medicine Maven, is a four-week course that you can take anytime and go at your own pace. The entire thing is recorded, comes with lifetime access, and is available wherever you live in the world. So if you have an internet connection, which I know you do because you're listening right now, (laughs) you can up-level your medicine game with me. Get in on it over at my website, CamilleRoseFields.com forward slash Medicine Maven. Hope to see you there. And now back to our episode. Yeah, so the two uh, terms that I use the most in my work is to describe what I do as body literacy and sexual sovereignty. I don't Mm. know that I coined them or not. I know that I did for me, but I don't imagine I'm the first person that ever said those things. Right. Um, But they're not like social lexicon that people are familiar with. So body literacy is having a really deep understanding of your body. And when we talk about the realm of sexuality, it's being very sexually literate as to your pleasure and being Mm -hmm. able to communicate that really well. But I do think body literacy expands to things like wheat doesn't really agree with me. I like going for runs, but not during my menstrual phase. You know, it's having that really deep understanding of your body, being very literate, being able to very eloquently speak the language of your body. Right. And then sexual sovereignty goes into is expands on that and taking full ownership of your sexuality and being able to really, really show up in it and not both body literacy and sexual sovereignty to me are very important that we have first before partnership with others. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you want to speak more on sexual sovereignty? Yeah. Is one of my later questions, but since you were just touching on that, um, what is that? I, I've, I've heard that mentioned before in your post and, you know, I'm a little obsessed with like all things sovereign and being sovereign and I'm a really independent, really independent person. Mm-hmm. So what do, what do you mean by that? So like I said, definitely like showing up and understanding your body. So having that deep body literacy first and then being able to be fully present to your pleasure, articulate what you want. But quite clearly, understand your sexuality outside of relationship to others. So in my ideal world, young folks learn Mm -hmm. this gradually over time, and it would never be something that was even relevant. Like in my ideal world, my job is irrelevant. (laughs) Right, right, right. But it's not right now. And so most of the folks that come to me have to relearn their entire sexuality because it has been in relationship to others. So for example, there might be a partner that really enjoys, say, there's a femme identifying person and they really enjoy spanking or deep throating or something like this, right? And mm-hmm. then so in session, I unpack with them, okay, why? Okay, why? Okay, why? And I keep mm-hmm. pushing until we get to the root of it, mm-hmm. which almost always is because I had a partner that really liked it. And so your neural wiring becomes connected to, it's like, um, are you familiar with Pavlov's dog? that um, 
idea of psychology where they like train them when a bell rings, they, yeah, they yeah. Bed, so they salivate. Right. Like yeah. This. So you get neurally wired, the negativity associated with sex becomes relevant sexual context. Right. But what's the issue is that it's through partnership with other. So then we explore, okay, outside of your relationship to other people, is this still sexually relevant for you? Right. So that's a really big piece of it. And then another piece, like, I feel like using examples is helpful in my work because it's hard oh, yeah. to understand. Right. Um, is a lot of people feel that their partner's job is to create arousal within themselves. Right. Okay. So I'm just not really turned on by my partner. And I was like, okay, what right. turns you off about yourself? How do you turn yourself off? How do you turn yourself on? And mm-hmm. we unpack that, that they have outsourced their entire sexual response system to another person, which is yeah, a, just put it on somebody. Is that such a risky choice? Like if we're going to look at like logistics and statistics, that's such a risky choice because like that person's not always going to be able to show up for you. And right. what are you saying about your sexuality that it's only relevant when another person is around? Right. That's what really hurts me that particularly yeah. femme folk have become conditioned that they're only sexually relevant in relationship to others. Mm-hmm. And a big part of my work is actually taking central self-portraits and I encourage people to share them and if they feel safe and comfortable too. And I have a lot of privilege to share mine. It's my work. It's something yeah. I've navigated over the years of people being uncomfortable with in my personal life. Totally. Uh, I'm also a normal looking white, thin person. So I have a lot of um, social privilege online in that when I share things that are provocative, they don't tend to get censored as much as uh, for people that don't carry those specific privileges. Right. But even still, having said all that, when I post these all the time, I get people saying like, why, like men will DM me, send me nudes, whatever. And then I always go like, let's have a conversation about that. And I actually have really interesting conversations. (laughs) Oh my God, you respond to these. (laughs) And eight times out of 10, they're like, oh my God, wow, I had no idea. And I'll have them like reading articles and reflecting on it. And they are realizing, oh my what God. does this mean? If this action isn't for attention, what does it mean? What a concept that I might just want to be able to express that I love my body and my sexuality. Right. Totally. What a radical concept. It's not at all. Right. But for a lot of people, it feels that way. And on both ends of the spectrum, I'm like for femme folk that are posting these or taking these, Mm-hmm. You can feel confrontational, like what will I want to send this to someone? Right. Again, relationship to others. Right. Right. So that's the sovereign part of that is mm-hmm. not putting it on other people and not even relating it to all these pathways you're just you're talking about to yeah. our experience because that really really does probably make up everybody's sort of sexual appetite or their personality rather is their, you know, their variety of experiences they've had Mm -hmm. in their lives. And, and a lot of people, a lot of people have had like unsafe experiences and two. And so I think that like there's, and, but, but not expecting, I think that um, there's a lot to be said for, feelings of unsafe that isn't something extremely traumatic Mm -hmm. and I think that that can build over time in people and just by you know friends 
that I've talked to and myself in ways is like those feelings of being unsafe are very valid too. And if you, if you kind of just proceed as you're sort of supposed to proceed, um, that I think can like build up in sort of traumatic ways for people or sort of, can you speak to that? I guess a bit is like, how does that affect somebody's, um, sexual energy and their, their desire or, or, you know, their sort of sexual appetite, like how that sort of safe or unsafe consent, you know, bring like a little bit to the consensual conversation, but that, um, thing is I think a lot of people too don't even feel safe to be with themselves Mm -hmm. that's a a thing too is just um you know that's that's something that people have to tackle in their own ways maybe they got like barged in on one time and got yelled at and so that's a really sort of weird um energy type of event and um yeah can you speak a little bit to that as far as like yeah so there's so many thing. things I'm like how can I streamline no, my answer um <sighs> I could also talk about a little if you'd like on the effects of um sexual assault on sexuality afterwards um to okay. the realm of science but in terms of what you're saying about safety is really really important because mm-hmm. w- another thing that I would love to be incorporated in this ideal sex ed course that I'm making up over my right. years <laughs> is um how the nervous system affects the arousal system and then how that goes into affecting sex. So in general, this is for all folk, but this is very, very relevant for femme and any folk that are socialized female. Mm -hmm. We absolutely must feel safe and relaxed in order for arousal to even begin. And then arousal leads to desire. So what's interesting is that the way we are socially conditioned right now is that we should have spontaneous arousal, right? Right. Now, spontaneous arousal is more common in male identifying people, Mm -hmm. much more common. So Mm -hmm. we all know, and not being too political about it, but we all know that we live under a patriarchal system. Right. And part of the way that that plays out into our bedrooms is that we are taught that everything to do with sex is normal for men. And then for women, we have a completely different system and it is not stimulated the same way. It is not activated the same ways. Mm -hmm. And so two of the key things that get missed here are how much the nervous system and in, you know, feeling safe and secure and respected Mm-hmm. affects arousal, which then leads to desire. So uh, instead of spontaneous arousal, spontaneous desire, we have contextual. Right. Okay. So that is a big piece that gets missed. And then the other piece that's really relevant is that uh, male identifying people tend to have a arousal response system that looks like a constant upward trend. So it starts mm-hmm. with like what's socially relevant. Okay, we're kissing. That feels sexually relevant. Mm-hmm. And then we move to like outer play, which is my preferred term rather than foreplay because I just could talk right. about that for an hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then it just keeps increasing in physical sensation and um, uh, internal sensation as well. Right. To climax and then sex is over. Right. So that is the most common response for male socialized folks. So that's what we see in the media. And then that's what femme folk identify as normal, not fucking normal, not fucking common for femme folk. 
Ours is nervous system feels safe, sexual response system is activated, ah, then desire is stimulated. Mm-hmm. You have to lead up into all of that. And if there's trauma, that can be a really complicated process. Right. And then the arousal system is more cresting waves that build up and go down and build up and go down. And climax can be at any of those points. Right. So if that was better understood, then people that were in heterosexual cisnormative relationships could have right. better sex because we need to take breaks. We need to slow down. It can't just be a constant buildup. And mm-hmm. the way I like to explain this to clients is if you ever pat a cat and you pat it mysteriously one too many times and it bites you. Uh, it is the energy <laughs> has been overbuilt and they need to disperse it out. So they right. bite to defuse the energy. And it's like right. that them folk having sex in this constant upward trend. For some people that manifests as like genitals shutting down, becoming really numb. For mm-hmm. other people, it can be oversensitive. Now mm-hmm. we need to stop. Mm-hmm. And for other people, it can be what I call sneezers, which are orgasms that kind of just feel like a sneeze. Like you do it and then you're like, ah, whatever. Oh my God. <laughs> That's so funny. Instead I've never of like, heard that term. I made it up. <laughs> Oh, okay. Instead of being like, oh my God, oh, 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 I need to lay down for like a week. I'm spent. Right, right, right. Totally. The arousal system hasn't been activated properly. Mm-hmm. So that's how the nervous system, in a nutshell, in a few minutes, that's how the nervous system right. really affects the sexual arousal system. And I feel like there's so, there's so much more education behind that too. Just as you were speaking, I was thinking about you know, so many women are in stress zone and living in, you know, too much cortisol and fight or flight stress hormones, um, whether it be through their surroundings, too much stimulation, so many things out, you know, just whatever the factors are. And I think that that probably has a huge effect on, on, the nervous system and everybody and that right there is like and then you're expected to do this that or the other thing um with this you know stress energy sort of like i think covering up all the sensor you know the senses Mm -hmm. um it feels like and so yeah that's a very that's that i feel like fascinated by that with the nervous system and how how that actually works. And that's really fun. And that's more of the body literacy. Like how does it work? How do I, you know, how do I, how does my body actually work? Um, I'm always fascinated when, you know, the old school thinking of people think they can get pregnant at any point in their cycle or they're just, there's so much lack of information around just even how our bodies actually work too. Like there's scientific, you know, in the sex ed kind of way, I think a little bit. And maybe if people are doing like an elective anatomy course or something like that, but really I don't think that people even know, you know, women can, women who have, you know, a vulva and, they can have orgasms in different places and many of them. And that's, it's like, sometimes people have no idea. And I think that like, what do you, what do you say, I I guess, as far as um, the education and if somebody wanted to dive deeper with the nervous system discussion, is that like 
maybe they should have a session with you or is there like a simple book maybe that breaks it down or do you have any videos or anything like that that break it down a little bit further as far as how the body even works in this way? Yeah. So one of the um, courses that I have coming out soon kind of mm-hmm. goes a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really good accessible way for people to start learning that information. Um, Cause I fully acknowledge that working with me one-on-one isn't financially available for everybody. So that's why I have right. a lot of content coming out soon. That's right. more accessible. Yeah. Um, what's interesting in whether it's me or someone else that you see for support is as I was saying, context is super relevant. So not just learning what the information is, but learning how does this apply to me specifically in context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Point as to the stress, very relevant. When right. we're in a stress state, the brain, the part of your brain that engages in that is also the part of the brain that regulates sex and arousal. So mm-hmm. if you're engaged in the stress, it's not you're not wrong or broken that you're not interested in having sex. Your brain just literally can't do both those things at once. Right. Unless you have an extremely high uh, sexual excitation system, in which mm-hmm. case for some people, I think it's four, four to 8% of um, femme folk have this. So very small okay. percentage right. where stress actually activates um, like libido and arousal, but it's very rare. Right. Right. So yeah, very important to learn, but, but very important to learn in context for you. So even asking yourself, like, how does my body feel when I'm in stress? What works to help bring me down instead of judging yourself? Because mm-hmm. then that just feeds into the cycle of, oh, I'm stressed. So I'm not interested in sex. Like, it's just probably not sexually relevant for you right now. Mm-hmm. And what can you address in your life? to help bring some of those stress levels down. Because what's particularly frustrating for me in American culture that I've observed is when someone shares that they're stressed, the response is like, oh, how can you cope with that stress? Do you need more coffee? Do you need to be working longer? Instead of what do you need to adjust so that there's less of that stress? Right. Right. (laughs) More coffee and working more isn't the solution. Right. I always feel like a lot of people's reactions to that question are, well, well what are you stressed out about? Yeah. It's like, how, that's like a really complex question. <laughs> Probably anybody that you ask has 10 to 15 to 20 answers for that. You know, it's not really sort of a one answer kind of thing. But yeah, I do wish more, more everybody, but particularly women knew how much stress in the nervous system affects sex and arousal because mm-hmm. there's, so much self judgment mm-hmm. and self shame and self criticism over that. It's like, oh, right. well, I'm stressed. I'm working. Maybe I'm also a mom. Maybe I'm also a partner. But now I have to be this like vibrant sexual creature that's always in the mood or right. and has spontaneous arousals. Like, oh, the keys, <laughs> superwoman. Like that's just not how it works. <laughs> that's so funny. So I do know that stress can even affect your fertility, mm-hmm. um, and so maybe we can talk a bit about the horm, you know, how hormonally that works with, um, you know, the arousal system and all of that, because I know that, um, I think it's the stress effects ele- can ev- elevate your estrogen levels. And so if you're having issues with fertility in general, um, that might be something to look at. Um, there's also lots of other factors just in case somebody listening is, you know, the f- word fertility peaked your ears. There's so many factors in what affects your fertility. But I want to, I want to talk about hormones, um, specifically how do, you know, 
what what kind of percentage are you seeing out there of women experiencing um hormonal issues or their hormone levels are sort of out of, out of balance and how does that affect how does that affect their you know sexual journey and their sovereignty i think it's funny because in my context like i the percentage of people i get that have fertility or hormone issues is probably a lot higher so like a lot of the people i interact with because of the context like that's part of maybe why they're seeking support right of course at least in my anecdotal experience it's very high yeah very very high and a lot of the time it might not be so um cut and dry in the sense that they've gone to the doctor and they've had these tests and they've learned that and that's a whole other story of how obgyns and doctors are dismissive of women's health yeah and there's also i mean and just from speaking from my own personal experience, there's so many um, conditions out there that at the root of it are a hormonal thing um, and that people don't realize like how huge of a, there's sort of like, oh, my hormones are out of whack. I'm going to just chow a bunch of maca and I'll be fine. But it's like, wait a second. And, you know, you know, or I'm going to take progesterone cream, but then do you even know what is happening each day of the month with your hormonal system. And I think that people in general could use a lot more education on that. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, that goes back to what I was saying as well about living in a patriarchal system. It's structured around men's hormones, which operate on a 24 hour cycle. Right. So right. they have energy in the morning and they're tired at night and women's hormones operate on roughly a 28 day cycle. And I say roughly, cause I see a lot of women's, uh, charts because i right. them with temping yeah um, for birth control or birth achievement and it's not 28 days no i've <laughs> i've had one 28 day cycle my whole life i think yeah. it's not 28 days yeah. but we'll say yeah. like it's very month. different for every single it really single is body yeah but yeah we'll say just roughly a month going by lunar phases mm-hmm. but you know that's where our hormone cycle so one week for example the during the time that you're in your ovulatory phase you might have a lot of energy and feel really social and feel like you can get to work early stay at work late whatever it is Mm -hmm. then during your menstrual phase you might not even feel like you have the energy to go Mm -hmm. and so that living in a society that does not function in a way that supports our natural hormones and they're on the daily they're on the daily Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that is a low level stressor that creates stress in the body. Mm-hmm. And then the more stress there is in the body, if we're not completing those stress response cycles, which in our modern society, we don't have the time to like give people long hugs, work out every day, take right. beautiful baths. Like we don't, a lot of people just don't have that time. So that stress stacks up and stacks up and stacks up in the body. Your body's waiting to complete those cycles and it's not happening. And that is what affects the hormone levels and what can cause fertility issues. I will also say in terms of stress and fertility, one of the things, and this is less science-based, so I want to preface it with that Mm because in my work, it's really interesting to navigate. I have one world, one foot in the world of like deep science and another foot in the world of the very esoteric, magical and energetic. So I, I feel I'm good at blending them, but I also think it's important for me to address when I'm, not speaking um, to the science. Um, So not speaking to the science, I will also say I see a lot of women that are having fertility issues, having stress issues, and part of the issue is there's no space for a child. They're racing around all day 
mm-hmm. no space for a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And you might say that's too woo woo for me to hear, but consider this, if you were living in a more traditional style and maybe you're, you're somewhat nomadic, you are in a period of stress and rushing around your menstrual phase might even stop because your body knows it would make no sense for you to be rushing around stressed. If there's a lot of lions that week pregnant or with a little baby. So your body knows how to adjust to stress. So part of the issue is if you're living in a constant state of stress and there's a lot of stressors, your body might just be going, this isn't a good time for me. Mm -hmm. Which is really frustrating for a lot of people to hear as well because they're like, well, I can't step back. It's like, okay, well, how are you going to step back when the baby's here? Right. And then so I encourage people to try to live the life that they would once the baby's arrived now. And I often right. see them achieve pregnancy more quickly. Yeah, I, I, I remember um, people kind of telling me that a little bit or the space thing especially um, – and I had some fertility challenges before my first son was born. And um, it is really hard to slow down. You're like, wait, no, I'm planning on slowing down when the baby comes or like when you're, I wasn't even planning for that. So, but um, hopefully some people, mostly everyone is. Um, and I just wanted to touch on what you were saying though, real quick with the cycles and um living like setting up our lifestyle as though i mean like with our cycle and i think you and i probably have the privilege of doing that working from home and have creating our own schedules and um i i know that i have you know a great privilege i'm able to design my life that way and still i do run into the date sometimes on those days when I start my cycle, it's usually like the early days are really intense and I just don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk mm-hmm. to anybody. I don't even want to eat anything except for like very cheesy quesadillas <laughs> or something, you know? Um, and, but I still, you know, I have to, I have to take care of my children or I have to like respond to work things. And I have to like, sometimes you know, I plan a launch on a day that my cycle starts and I can't really, I know around when my cycle is going to start, but it's not perfectly on the dot. It's like more of a range of days. And so, um, I have, I've learned a bit more, but I've been diving in a little bit more with that, um, the cyclical living and sort of trying to use it to your benefit. Is that something that you practice in your life as far as like knowing about how your hormones are working all month long? Do you try and schedule things that way or like, you know, design your work a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Like it's, it's fair to acknowledge that we have the privilege to do that. But I also want to call out that some businesses are starting to move more towards that way. Mm-hmm. And if someone um, listening is curious, I would definitely recommend Alyssa Vitti's book, Woman Code. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause that, that really dives into that. And yeah. in her, business that's how she has structured as well for all her employees that they're able to work according to their cycles right um so yeah i do structure it that way i do fertility awareness method so i monitor Mm -hmm. my temperature and i track my cycles based on that Mm -hmm. a lot of people just use like an app on their phone Mm -hmm. if you're not 
checking your temperature, it's just guessing when you're ovulating. So that's not successful if you're trying to achieve pregnancy and it's not effective if you're trying to avoid pregnancy. Right. Um, so yeah, I use that method and I, I love to sync with my cycles, but I will also say like mine are quite irregular. And from the mm. time I ovulate, I know when my period will start because that, that phase, your luteal phase is 14 days. Usually that's the most set part of anyone's cycle usually. Right. right. Um, but even still, sometimes, like you said, like I've scheduled something and it's, it's unavoidable or my period will come early or late and right. then it's like figuring out how to roll with it. And I think so much of family existence is being adaptable. Mm-hmm. They associate us with like the water signs and being able to flow, but it's very challenging. And I want to call out as well that like, it's challenging for anyone that's not male to live in a patriarchal system and that is a low-lying systemic stressor and that can be something that affects your your hormones your health your sexual interest or sexual wellness and if you add in being a woman of color that like is compounded exponentially Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah thank you for saying that thank you for mentioning that Um, it's great It's so fantastic. And I, the more I am learning about it, it's really quite hilarious because I will, I will do this thing. I did it earlier this year. I, um, I planned a crazy summer, like a crazy Mm. summer, nothing I should be doing where I'm at (laughs) my year right now. Um, just totally ridiculous, like over the top. And it was during an ovulatory phase and I was mm-hmm. feeling really social. Mm-hmm. I was awake. I'm often uh, during that time, I'm awake at 5 a.m. every single day. I stay up till midnight the night before. I have like energy for, for, I mean, it's just like hilarious to me. The, the complete ends of the spectrum that I experience where I'm like, I will, could mm-hmm. sleep all day long and like not see a single person to like, I've been a total social butterfly putting way too much on my plate and planning way too many social things that then I'm like, Ooh, I maybe shouldn't have done all of that. And so I'm starting to really try and um, take a look further at that is okay. How am I going to feel about this a week from today? And then another week after that. And is this something that I'm just like, you know, feeling between ovulating and the full moon or whatever it is. Um, and it's, it, it's very entertaining to me to to sort of like learn more about ourselves through that. Yeah. And try and use it too. I've been, um, I love Kate Northrup's, uh, Mm -hmm. talks on the subject with, I think she called it the upward cycle of success. Mm. I believe that's her term. Um, and talking about using our cyclical nature of our bodies to our benefits mm-hmm. and specifically scheduling things for work um, around that. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, this is um, only an issue if you're trying to force yourself to live under the male hormone system of 24 hours. If you embrace right? it as a monthly or however long your personal cycle is, it's fantastic. And you can schedule your sex differently. You can mm-hmm. schedule your food differently. You can schedule your workouts differently. You can yep. schedule your work and your social, like all of that plays into different phases of the cycle. And the more you lean into it, the more fantastic it is. Yeah. And I think it really gives uh, women permission, at least I experienced this, um, to 
not guilt trip ourselves for feeling not like working out for an hour a day sometimes. And I, I've done this to myself over the years of like, you know, I, I feel fit. I can handle exercise. I should just be into it more and have a regular thing with it. And, you know, some of my friends have these like one hour workouts they do every day. And I'm like, how come I can't just have a regular yoga practice or workout schedule that I stick to every day and learning more about um, how my body is reacting to my own hormones and what's happening inside my body um, with, in relation to the moon, mm-hmm. this, um, it makes so much sense. It just, and it gives me permission to not be hard on myself for those things. Yeah. Right? One of the things I would highly recommend is a suggestion I make to clients that might be helpful for you is instead of scheduling the type of activity, like what the activity is, schedule the genre. So for working out, it might be your body. So an hour a day, you'll have time for your body. Maybe you're in your menstrual phase and that wants to be taking a nap. Right. Or bath or just laying on the floor and crying and eating chocolate. Oh my God. It sounds so familiar. <laughs> but like during the ovulatory phase, you're like, no, I want like a high intensity workout. So like scheduling right. the time to honor that need, but not making it so specific. And that can be self-care, food, whatever you like, sex. But yeah. uh, when people schedule like 8.15 workout, 8.30 eat, you know, nine o'clock do this. It's like, that's the male system and that might not work for you. Mm-hmm. And then if you set yourself up for that and it doesn't work for you and then you punish yourself because you weren't successful at a system that you were set up to not be successful at. Mm-hmm. Wow. They really win. <laughs> Right. They really, they really do win. They yeah. buy more things to try to fix it. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, you were fine. You just were that you needed a different system. Right. Or that you needed to be completely, you know, high energy, sort mm-hmm. of normal high energy or whatever that is for people, Twenty, you know, every day, all day long. And I think that very few people give themselves permission to ever be just in energy fluctuation. And, um, I find that my energy fluctuates all day long, all day long, but every day too, you know, it's like, whoa, okay. And I feel like so much of the crux of my work, you could boil down to just learning how to speak your body's language and then Mm -hmm. learning how to be comfortable listening to it and honoring it and feeling like you deserve that. Wow. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Like what? How do we, how do we feel like we deserve that? You know, I think one of the topics we touched on in our pre-interview chats is like self-care and Mm self-love and how those go together. Um, And I think a lot of people sort of just put that, both of those things to the wayside just to get all the things done that they need to get or to put on the face that they need to be, Mm -hmm. you know, doing. Um, so how do we, how do we sort of start to embrace that more as a, as individuals and then hopefully as a culture, but, um, you know, really listening to our bodies and, and honoring the self care and, and that, um, in that way. Well, it's mentally challenging. Yeah. It's mentally challenging because we live in a society where we're constantly being told, that we don't deserve that. And part of that issue is um, sociocultural where men tend to be socialized as 
experiences where their job is to take up space and experience life. Mm-hmm. And women are socialized as givers. And it's important for us to always be giving to other folk. Mm-hmm. So when you take time for yourself, you're not able to give. And we see this even in sleep. Women don't sleep enough. They call yeah. it um, the fourth shift or something like that, where like you go to work, that's your first shift. Right. Your second shift is taking care of your family. Third shift is housework because women still predominantly do the bulk of the housework, even regardless of who works more and makes more money, by the way. Right. And the fourth shift is sleep. And science shows that even women who don't have children that are like toddler or baby age are the ones that wake up at night with the kids. And the idea being we feel selfish for sleeping because we can't take care of anyone else for sleeping Mm -hmm. if we're sleeping. So Mm -hmm. constantly unpacking, why do I not feel deserving of taking a bath is it because i feel guilty that i can't take care of somebody else and is it okay for me to feel guilty but still do it right particularly in american culture you guys have this idea that like if there's any negativity around it it's bad like oh you're not supposed to do that maybe it feels fucking confrontational and uncomfortable to take care of yourself or you feel selfish for having solo sex when you could be having sex with your partner, but what you're doing is saying that you matter and your sexuality is important to you. Right. So it's a constant practice. I wish I had a quick, easy answer. It's just a constant practice of pushing your boundaries of how comfortable do I feel with this self care Mm -hmm. and then pushing again and again and again. And you need to be emotionally, spiritually, physically resourced in order to take care of other people. And I don't think it's a great idea for me to say, even though I do, um, taking care of yourself helps you be a better giver, but it is true. Like you're going to do better at work. You're going to be able to show up with more presence in all of your relationships if you are taking care of yourself first. So if that has to be the way you get into it, fine. Use that as a pathway in. But then once you're in and you're enjoying the self-care and you're feeling the benefits, hopefully you'll be able to shift And it'll be enough that you just deserve to take care of yourself. Because also like, who are you that you think you don't deserve all this self-care? Right. Why are you so special that you don't deserve self-care? Everybody does. (laughs) That's That's like the one thing that people always say. I'm like, you are so incredibly special and unique. And that's the only way that you're probably not. You need self-care. You're not some robot that's able to get on without it. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You're going to have to make time in your day. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I, I know for myself, I've, I have felt the need to justify every mm-hmm. single um, self-care act. And it's only been sort of recently my girlfriend is like, um, you don't actually have to give me a reason for taking a bath. Just go do it. Why are you telling me why all the reasons you need? (laughs) And it's like, oh, right. I don't have to constantly justify. I have to stop and make myself something to eat because I actually just worked like seven hours and I didn't stop. And now I have to make myself something to eat before I pass out. And it's like, oh, we actually could get way more out of that whole justification system, this constant needing to justify why we're taking care of ourselves. Yeah. So that's because you're a human giver because you're a woman. Mm -hmm. You have to explain, okay, so I actually briefly need to stop giving, but here's why that's okay. Yeah. Instead of just being like, oh, I'm going to be an experiencer and just experience my life 
and I don't need justification for that. But it's really hard. And part of the problem, like we were saying earlier, is like women are expected to be everything to everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. And we have, and there's a whole other thing I could speak on for like an hour. We mm-hmm. have a real dire lack of community care. Yes, and this is what, so true. What a whole community used to do for a woman and her family is now expected to only be fulfilled by her one romantic partner. And I say this in like a heteronormative, right. blah, 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 blah. Right. But it's impossible. You can't function like that. So when I said earlier, sorry, you're just going to have to make time. I just got this pang of like, oh, I bet there's people listening that are like, how the fuck can I make time, Isabel? Like I have no time. And I hear that. I've been there. I've been there too. (laughs) You can make more time by asking for help. You might need help. And that might look like getting a housekeeper, asking Mm -hmm. your neighbor or your neighbors if you could all do like a potluck. Mm -hmm. Can you do some food sharing? Can you share going to the grocery store with a neighbor where like Mm -hmm. one week they get all the groceries for the both of you and then the next week, you know, navigate what feels good or even just asking if you have a partner hey, can we have a look at the division of labor in our relationship? Right, right, totally. It might look like needing more help in community care. Yeah, and I think that's something that, like, hopefully, I think that, um, well, yeah, it does, I just hope that that gets more out there and more um, sort of turned around, if you will, because it's, 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 um, it's hard to ask for help. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, as a, as a woman and mother, mm-hmm. I think that so much of it is, so much is expected of us that on top of the lack of community care and the community efforts, um, there's also this sort of expectation that like, if it seems like you're doing it all, everybody just calls you a super mom and nobody asks if that's okay. <laughs> or no one asks if you're okay and it's kind of a weird system out there is like the mothers get um applauded for doing so much and being able to handle so much and um you know cranking out more children and breastfeeding or not breastfeeding or figuring out issues or like recovering from birth or just even like mothering a teenager and and so i think that um the more that we can try and just help you know have these conversations with other people in our community and that's one of the sort of concepts behind this show is how do these conversations trickle out you know like i know this is not going to be heard by all the people right but each person that has an opportunity and maybe it piques their curiosity once they're listening. Mm -hmm. You know what? Like, I really want to learn about this more. And maybe they share with a friend later that day, I was listening to this podcast earlier and blah, blah, blah. And I say that all the time to my friends and, Mm -hmm. and it really is a trickle effect. And I think that's like, for me, that's part of the radiating, you know, how do we, how do we help the trickle effect? in beneficial ways because there's going to be a trickle effect no matter what and so like how do we help with it Mm -hmm. you know how do we assist in uplifting and spreading good messages and all of that sort of thing 
Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to episodes. And now it's time for our take action segment. This is something that I include in every episode and it's an opportunity to take action in some way, some small way. So I found out about this incredible organization, IPAS.org, from Isabella, and I think that they are doing incredible things. They are unapologetically focused on women and girls who need or want contraception or abortion, and they build their programs on how best to support that. So they're doing incredible things and there's really easy ways to help out if you visit their website ipas.org you can check it out and do one small thing today take action and now back to the rest of our episode with isabella enjoy yeah, your words and your energy are going to spread. So let them be love and support and kindness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you have a bit more time? Yeah, I okay. can go for like another hour. I'm easy. Okay, I can't go for that long, but I will. I know I already feel the need for a follow-up interview. And so um, I hope you'll be interested in doing that yeah, at this point. Too. Something that I would love to touch on is I know a lot of people, and I've encountered this in my life, um, they, it appears like people have mismatched sort of sexual energy, mm. right? So I was wondering if you could speak to, speak to that and how, how can partners um, of any gender connect intimately if they feel like they have a mismatched energy what is something that you could share with that um sort of okay so i don't want to call it a challenge it's just a thing we're just going to call it a thing (laughs) just how to navigate that yeah exactly Um, okay so one i'm going to go back to my constant message of body literacy and sexual sovereignty if you really know what you're about sexually and you know how to communicate lovingly to a partner what you need more of what you need less of what mm-hmm. you need adjust in mm-hmm. that's going to expedite mm-hmm. this whole process mm-hmm. but that's not the default for people so really focusing on communication and the desire to understand a partner and not make them the same as us so mm-hmm. understanding that same doesn't mean good it can sometimes, right. but it doesn't right. inherently. Right. And whether it's ironic or not, part of what we do in relationship is we seek sameness. So I say sameness because we're talking about a, a clash or a discrepancy in, in sexual energy. Mm-hmm. Part of when we're in relationship with someone is we seek sameness because that creates intimacy, that boosts oxytocin, that makes us feel safe and secure. Right. And that feels good. And that's fantastic for things like being housemates, if you live together and you're romantic, you're kind of housemates, you have that relationship. Um, also for child rearing, fantastic. For the erotic, mm-hmm. terrible, mm-hmm. terrible, terrible, terrible. The erotic thrives on mystery, mm. some level of uncertainty. Right. 
and the understanding that we will never, ever truly know our partner. They are a very separate entity. Right. And being able to come together with this deep separateness. And then what can we create together sexually instead of, ah, you're different than me, so I need to teach you to be more like me. Right. So knowing how to speak the language of your own body and then learning the language of your partners instead of being frustrated that they're not the same. Right. One of the really actionable tools I would recommend if someone's listening and dealing with this Mm -hmm. is the erotic blueprints, Mm -hmm. which is, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So Jaya has like cultivated this fantastic system of the erotic blueprints. You can just go to her website, do a quiz, give you a sense of it. Probably Um, the erotic blueprint.com or something like that. I think so. It'll be in the Um, show notes. (laughs) Oh yeah. And if you just Google it, it'll come up. She's like the pioneer of it. And so that gives you a good understanding. Um, so for example, if you're a sensual blueprint and your partner is a sexual, you're not, their approach to sex is probably going to be really, really direct. So Mm -hmm. it might be like, Hey, let's have sex. Do you want to have sex? Are you up for sex? Or just straight to genital touches to try that because that's what works for them. But for a sensual, that's going to completely shut them down because they need slowness, anticipation. They need like the room to be tidy. There's candles lit. There's like essential oils, you know, going like it's really. I'm familiar with, I'm familiar with sensual. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been the... taking the quiz. As well. Okay. <laughs> so if the sensual person is just like, no, this isn't how I approach. Like, no, 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 no. Shut down, shut down, shut down. Right. Next. So figuring out together what's a way that we can co-create a fun sexual experience that works for both of us mm-hmm. instead of judging and definitely asking questions of your partner is the best sexual tool you can possibly have in your tool belt right. so let's say the sexual energy discrepancy is one partner is really really into a specific kink let's say it's dominance and submission and the other partner is like i, I just don't know about all this mm-hmm. instead of asking like what is this? How do you do it? And then feeling confronted by that, ask them, what about this is erotic to you? What turns right. on about this? Because right. then you understand their turn on. And then maybe it's not something in that specific kink that works, but you can access something that works both of you through that place of what right. turns you on about this, not what is this exact thing. Right. Does that make sense? It totally does. That's great. Really, Real communication that's non-judgmental, loving, and open, acknowledging that our partner is super different to us and they probably will never be the same. And if they are, we're going to feel really close and snuggly, but probably not erotic at all. Right. And living somewhere, finding a way to be comfortable in that separateness, in that kind of uncertainty of like, yeah, my partner could choose to do anything and they keep choosing to be with me. So that's nice. Mm-hmm. Not like I own them and I know everything about them because it's not sexy. Right. Totally. The body. <laughs> like it might, yeah, yeah. might seem sexy to the mind, but your body yeah, is uninterested. I really like how you phrase the question too on sort of how to like bring it up with your partner and unpack it with them is not turning it and being like, well, why, Mm -hmm. you know, is okay. So let's get to, you know, like what's the root or what is it exactly how, you know, because energy, it's all just like energy. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like, um, what about that 
is what you're experiencing that turns you on. And so I really love that way. Thank you of breaking that down and, and being able to like, you know, that's something that I've heard a lot about with the mismatched thing. And, um, and I think that that's a really, a really great place to start is like having those conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In terms of, um, was part of your question about like sex drive as well? Cause I realized I just kind of acknowledge it for sexual energy. Um, that, no, I think that was in, in a different question, but you know, feel free to rant on it if you want (laughs) when two people you know when partners two or whoever but like um have different sex drives too that's another that's another really like awesome topic is how do those you know maybe one is it maybe one person is like they get to have more solo play time and you know and like how does that how would you sort of in a broad stroke yeah, so unless people have mismatched drives in a sense. Yeah, so part of it is that like sex drive isn't a thing, like scientifically, biologically, it doesn't exist. Oh um, my god, that's right. The myth of the sex drive. I remember this. Yeah, but a lot Bring of it on. <laughs> a lot of couples like come to me and they think they have mismatched sex drive. That's like probably the most common thing I see in couples. It's either mismatched right. drive or mismatched right. sexual energy both are easy to easy issue to adjust simple perhaps not always easy um is a better way to say that but with sex drive it kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier about sexual context and sexual relevance and how stress affects it mm-hmm. so the time that i have couples come with mismatched sex drives mm-hmm. the, the, if if it's a male female partnership the female partner most commonly that i would say 80 percent of the time it's that person that's feeling less like their sex drive is lower. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, so then I unpack, okay, what turns you off? What's the context here? And it's normally that there's no pathways to arousal available to that person. So of course they're not interested in sex. Nothing is registering as sexually relevant. Right. So right. yes, part of what you were saying of like, maybe the person with the higher sex drive could have more sex with themselves. That's fine. I think people should just have as much sex with themselves as they're interested in having. Mm-hmm. as long as it's not right. in some way becoming illegal or unhealthy right right um, <laughs> but usually it's more about unpacking what are the issues around sexual context and why is nothing registering is sexually relevant and reconnecting mm-hmm. on like an interpersonal level with their partner and then unpacking where did the issue lie with sexual relevancy and often it's to do with issues with children mm-hmm. feeling touched out they're mm-hmm. already being such givers in every other area of their life. And like we are saying, maybe not getting enough help and support and they're really right. overwhelmed. So then their partner approaching them sexually is just another person that needs something from them. Right. Another way to give. And that's not sexy. That's not turning anyone on. Right. So having a conversation with your partner about where the issues around sexual context and sexual, sexual relevance are. Mm-hmm have reconnecting on an interpersonal level and looking at pathways to personal arousal and how can that other person help support those pathways so their partner that has the quote unquote lower sex drive feels more sexual relevance and feels more of that accelerator and they feel safe to express that as well going back to the nervous system of safety right 
Right. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, I have, let's see, I have one more question, um, specifically, and it might kind of be a multi-part question, I guess, but, um, I want to go back to what we were kind of talking about in the beginning around shaming and in this idea of solo sex. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sort of even on the similar note as the therapist, it's like, well, why would you need to masturbate, right? It's like so many people think that it's because you're not getting something from somewhere else. And that's why, you know, you need your solo sex time. Um, and I've also heard you use the term jilling off. And I just think it's hilarious <laughs> and wonderful. And I feel like I feel like I looked up the term for a masturbate one time and I really didn't like what the definition was. And now I don't remember at all what the definition is. Mm -hmm. um, but I love the, you know, the solo play or solo sex term. Um, it just feels really resonant and really good. So can you speak a bit about that and how do we sort of dismantle that shame that, you know, a lot of us are feeling around that desire and that, in that need and why do we need it without the partner too? Yeah. So, okay. First off, I would ask people to reflect and maybe through journaling or meditation on what does masturbation mean to them and what does solo sex mean to them and how does that feel comfortable or different? Mm -hmm. Because for me, I love solo sex instead of masturbation because the, just hearing it, it already tells you this is sex. It's just that no one else is there. Not this is something I'm doing because I'm not having sex. Right, exactly. That's why I have issues with the term foreplay because I'm like, that's sex. But it's all sex. It's all sex. It's all sex. Um, <laughs> then I would urge people to question their definition of solo sex. So could it be slowly and luxuriously rubbing like oil all over yourself while you listen to a really sensual song? And that's a way to add in sensuality and sex to a, your day already. Like maybe you're already going to moisturize yourself, but instead of multitasking and just quickly rubbing in the oil, like you really enjoy each part of your body and really savor it. Or it could be, you know, just uh, perhaps reading erotica. You know, it can look in all mm -hmm. different, different ways, but what does sex mean to me? What does solo sex mean to me? And what social cultural narratives have I heard that I can unpack about sex, uh, solo sex being a reaction to not having good sex with a partner or not having access to sex with a partner. Right. What does that make me feel about my self-esteem that I'm not important to have sex with for me? Right. Like it's important to me that I have sex with myself because I love myself and I love sex. And it's nice to have that like connected relationship with yourself. And can we also say fantastic way to learn about your body and develop that body literacy and sexual sovereignty. If you expect some orgasm to come in on shining armor, some person to teach you how your body works, you're going to be time. <laughs> or perhaps never, which is perhaps so sad. Never. There's probably millions of people out there just their lives are over with never having had an orgasm sadly and i've had so many people come to me saying like that certain things just don't happen to them and mm -hmm. they're like oh i just don't have orgasms or i just don't have orgasms as a partner i say okay mm -hmm. up till now up till yeah, now. yeah 
Can you be yeah. open to that changing? Because maybe you just haven't found the pathway yet. Right. But really right. questioning, because it's really different for every person, honestly. Some people, like you mentioned earlier, had shame around masturbation. Like maybe someone burst in or caught them or, you know, there's mm-hmm. personal issues around that. And other times it's just the cultural influences. But really unpacking what does it mean and why is it important to me to have sex with myself? And then if you're in partnership, can you feel safe to communicate that to your partner? And they can support you in that too. Right. And what's, what's a way to maybe um, explain that to a partner too, without making them feel like they're not doing enough. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? As I I imagine people run into that as well as sort of like, well, if you need that, then I'm clearly inadequate. And so what's the deal here kind of thing. But if you can like share a way to explain to your partner, this is just like, this is me time and this is what I need or yeah. Yeah. I would just explain that it's really important for you to have a sexual relationship with yourself and that that relationship is separate to the one mm-hmm. of partnership and the relationship with yourself is not a reflection of the mm-hmm. partnership or the quality of the sex that you're having in partnership and right. then express what your personal reasons are. For example, a lot of people that have experienced sexual assault, it becomes challenging to prioritize solo sex and so reclaiming your pleasure as being important and just a relationship with yourself might be a really vitally important piece of that puzzle. And right. you can articulate that. But whatever your personal importances are, being able to articulate that and explain to your partner, not a reflection of them, not a reflection on your sex life. And in fact, not that this is like the main reason, mm-hmm. but in fact, having solo sex with yourself almost always improves any partner in sex you're going to have anyway. Right. So also it's so good for your body. It's good for your immune system. It's good for your stress responses. It's good for everything in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just on a like basic level. Just on a basic level. That's why you should do it. If right. We, if we're going to take or your health, health people. Yeah. You heard it here. <laughs> Orgasms are good for you. Who would have thought? Do you know what? I actually just read that um, a really interesting study showed that some uh, fetuses in utero masturbate. Oh, and my God. It's amazing because before we have any influence on if we should or shouldn't do it, we are programmed to move towards pleasure. Right. Right. And we, And that feels very innate, too. You know, it feels really like we reach for the pleasurable things and we, we want the pleasurable things. And I can even just like in life in general, I can see it in my children. They're like, we love having awesome days. You know, it's like full of fun and everybody gets along and we're happy and stuff. Um, and I, you know, I think that, yeah, we kind of like, we don't prioritize pleasure. You know, there's so many reasons why that's not really, um, prioritized I guess is so it's like why there's a million reasons why but like um yeah I just I'm getting off on a tangent here but just being able to feel the desire for pleasure and again not needing to justify it too going back to that self-care talk is okay I want solo sex time for me and I want to prioritize it and I don't need to give a list of reasons Mm -hmm. or um, to justify why I want this. Yeah. Um, 
And I would say like yeah. in the case of communicating to your partner, maybe communicate some logistics as well that you would prefer. Like, so you might want to say to them, when I am going to prioritize my solo sex, I'll let you know. And I prefer to not be interrupted. Mm-hmm. And maybe perhaps when I come out, I either do or don't want to be asked about it. You know, can it just be as normal as me going to do yoga where in my right. room and where I come back, you're not like, so how was that yoga session? Which poses did you do? How did it feel? You know, like maybe you want that because maybe it feels fun and juicy, but maybe it feels invasive. And yeah. you're like, oh, cool. You're done. Yeah. What do you want to get yeah. into? I love that. But sort of like talk to them about how you might want the logistics to look, if you know, or just mm-hmm. experiment and see what works for you. Mm-hmm. See what you like. That's awesome. Um, I feel like I can keep going forever and ever with a million <laughs> questions for you, but I am going to cap it off at I think like an hour and a half. So <laughs> what, here's my, my final question that I ask everybody is how can our listeners feel radiant right now? What's something that they can just jump right into and start radiating? Okay. I think what I would suggest, because I think this is the most approachable pathway into this type of work Mm -hmm. is slowing down through the rest of your day that you listen to this podcast for the rest of the day, slow down as much as you can and engage your senses. So like if you're going to eat a piece of fruit, Mm. like savor it and feel how that feels. Or if you're drinking water, think, ah, my body is getting so hydrated and well Mm-hmm. coming from that place of approaching your entire life with sensuality mm-hmm. it's going to help really awaken all of your pleasure systems and help get in i was just thinking like that would make me feel the most kind of radiant as an entry point like ah right fruit tastes so good this sun feels so good on my skin like getting into that really juicy feeling for a lot of people that's like more accessible than prioritizing solo sex every day and right Right. Of course. I love that. And it makes me think I need, I'm going to be doing that today. (laughs) I so often just rush by and suddenly I've eaten a meal and like, I don't even, you know, like there wasn't a stopped moment of tasting and like savoring. Yeah. Um, When you slow down, you get so in your body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's where all the pleasure is. Yay! <laughs> I love that. Oh, amazing. Okay, Isabella, thank you so much for no being on the show. I'm so happy to have you. I still have a million questions, so I think <laughs> we'll probably have some more interviews to do. Um, if you want to find more with you, where can we find you? Your website? Yep, isabellafrappier.com. Okay which I guess we can just put in the show notes because it's yeah. to spell. Yeah, um, yeah. Or you can find me on Instagram at Bella took a photo, which is a good kind of platform. And then you can just click in my bio and find my website through there. And I put a lot of like, I try to put a lot of content that like inspires people to connect with themselves a bit more on there. And I've had a lot of people say like that, that brings them a lot of joy and helps them connect with their sensuality. So that's Beautiful. a fun space. And <laughs> if somebody wants to, you know, take a deep dive and sign on with you. They can find more about your client work on your website. Yes. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks for listening, you guys. This is the Radical Radiance Show. I am your host, Camille Rose Fields. And we're just getting started here. So this is episode four. If you like this show or this episode, please leave me a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And remember, come connect with me if you're listening to this show today and you share it in your IG stories, tag me at Camille Rose Fields. Let me know what you're up to. What's your biggest takeaway? I want to hear from you. So drop me a line on Instagram, Facebook, or on my website. And if you want to grab those links, you can find them in the show notes or over on the website. And that's it. Hope you enjoyed. Love y'all.